Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Today you'll be hearing part two of my discussion with Anna Pinto de Silva and Dr. Jonathan Salk. Into our world to make it a healthier, more balanced, more adaptive society that mm. flows from both of those populations. This is a fantastic ideas. Uh, the I think of wonder and wisdom. So I'm going to I'm going to pick my two words: wonder and wisdom. Maybe it's because they're both W's, but I think that a child's sense of wonder and curiosity, which just is always has an optimistic envelope around it. And after living so long, we certainly hope that our knowledge and understanding result in wisdom. After a period of time, we must find context, not once in a while, but as mainstream where wonder and wisdom are celebrated and protected. When we think about where we are as a nation, if I can just keep this inside the United States for right this moment, we think of where we are as a nation and we look at societally the assault on our entire population by our addiction to technology. And our addiction to technology in some way um, dumbs down wonder by replacing natural wonder with images and thoughts and ideas that may not be my own. They are not naturally generated from a natural curiosity. They're inserted to us as children these days, almost inundated. And wisdom is set aside for opinion. And this really is bothering to me because the innocence of both ends of this, this question is diminished. The question comes to me is, what do we do as a society to protect this innocent wonder and this wonderful wisdom so that it's not diminished and kicked to the curb and kind of like, yeah, whatever. How, how do we as a society recover from this awful place where we are? I, maybe it's, it's the question that's trying to boil the ocean, but I sure would love to hear from both of you on this. The first answer, Dave, is, is a, a phrase that, uh, that I recently heard from the, the head of the Bernard Van Leer Foundation. And it's talking about looking at, at the design of urban space through the eyes of a three-year-old. And I think that, and this is where it intersects with the issue of the design, if we begin to design spaces and design social spaces and, and, and relationships through the eyes of children and through the eyes of the elderly, that's going to make a big change. But to take another example, it, it's clear that increased time and attention and physical contact with small children is very important to their development. And what happens to them in the first three to four years of life is very important in terms of how they turn out as people. If we begin to value that, then we end up with changes not only just in schools or in 
in children, but in the relationships with, with caregivers and having children more integrated into the workspace and designing our workspace and our lives around those increased contacts and attention both to children and older people, then you really have the, the elements of a real sea change that runs through our entire world. And again, as Anna said, in this interdisciplinary way, that, that then has effects all the way up the line from the child's experience through the family, through the community, through and on up through the political and economic systems. And if we begin to look at and design our futures from that point of view, I think there's purchase there. I think there's purchase there to make real change. Thank you for that. Well, what do you say, Anna? Thank you for that. And, and Jonathan, I, I so loved your answer. I, I think it's, it's so, so beautiful. And I, I feel that, you know, for me, the answer lies so much in what Jonathan has said. It's truly about in imagining and envisioning a better future, a future where every life truly has equal value, to borrow a phrase from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We have at this moment absolutely everything we need as a planet to build forward a more generative, resilient, equitable, and healthy planet. It's really exciting. As you say, Dave, it's one of the most exciting times to be alive. And we are all so privileged to be able to act from wherever it is that we sit towards that transformation. I feel that so much of the work really has to do with our values and accepting and admitting how important we are to each other. And from that place of respect, build forward a vision of a truly better world. And I think that that's the opportunity right now. It's really to fuel our work with joy. And I just want to underline what one of the things that Anna said, which is we really do currently have the capacity technologically, scientifically, industrially, but also psychologically and socially to address this kind of transformation and this kind of change. But it, it really is an, a change in value. And instead of valuing material growth solely um, at the expense of individual well-being, which is endemic in certain respects, in, in, if we look at this from a worldwide standpoint, that we really do have the capacity to solve these problems and to, and to make the changes necessary if we put the solution of the problems, of the human problems, in the forefront. I want to bring forward to Jonathan's point, the words of Martin Luther King. He said, through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not yet had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. And, and I think that, that that really captures it. Mm -hmm. If you really think about it, we've always had the tools available to us to make the world a better place. The question is, how do we decide to bring that to bear? And do we truly commit to making those changes happen? Right now, we are awash in technological genius. It's really incredible. And, and I, I, I must say, I take a slightly different view. I think technology, scientific achievement, so many incredible things are happening 
And it is tempting to catastrophize, but the fact remains that these advances and these opportunities are really revealing new worlds to us. The question really is, is do we have time to process what we are able to take in today? And can we in some ways step away to be thoughtful about the world that we live within. And, and I want to, again, center uh, young childhood and older adulthood. Both of these life phases are phases in our human experience that do give us a little bit more time, both to experience and to reflect and it may be that that's exactly and precisely what we need in order to chart a more generative and resilient path forward. This idea of technology, um, technology in and of itself is not evil, nor is it good. It just simply is. It's an inanimate construct. The problem really comes down to the question of responsibility. I remember many, many years ago sitting in a set of lectures uh, under the primary theme called the responsibility of knowledge. And we spent three days with a set of speakers from Oxford and the University of Chicago delving into what does it mean to know and what is the responsibility of once I do know what I do with that knowing, right? And my greatest fear is that whether it is technology content providers, or whether it is the news service, or whether it is any any number of voices, is the idea that we are, must be responsible and coupling that with accountable to the knowledge that we have seems to be completely void. We are just publishing, 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 broadcasting, 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 without any sense of responsibility and accountability for the content that we put out and the damage that it may cause to a young, wonder-filled mind or an older, wisdom-filled mind who are on both ends are racked with fear, uncertainty, and doubt because of irresponsible use and broadcasting of knowledge. We're in a really extraordinary place. We're in this place where I believe design can play a central role in addressing these dynamics of childhood for healthiness and well-being in a new and constructive way for later living and healthiness that creates a sense of belonging and community. I was reading, it's so funny, people often quote the famous a statement uh, now made famous by Winston Churchill, you'll remember, where he says, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. So funny how often statements like that are taken out of context. The statement was made in a speech to the House of Commons, the parliament, in October of 1943, and the prime minister stood up and he said, I beg to move. In other words, he's putting forward a, a resolution that a select committee be appointed to consider and report upon plans for the rebuilding of the House of Commons upon such alterations as may be considered desirable while preserving all its essential features. Isn't that interesting? On the night of the 10th of May, 1941, with one of the last bombs of the last serious raid 
from the Germans, our House of Commons was destroyed by the violence of the enemy, and we have now to consider whether we should build it up again, and how, and when. We shape our buildings, and afterwards, our buildings shape us. That's the context of that statement. In other words, the building had been destroyed. It had been attacked by an enemy, and now was an opportunity for a rebuilding that would preserve some of the legacy while introducing new alterations for a new world. We're in that place, Anna and Jonathan. We're in that place right now. Bombs have hit our society. They've hit our, our socioeconomic dynamic. They've hit us, exposing awful things about us. But they've also revealed wonderful things, as you spoke about earlier. And so, design has this opportunity to reshape us, in a way, as a society, as a people, as a responsible citizenry. I'm interested to hear from you on where you believe that the design professions, and I know you're both great lovers of design. I know that that Jonathan and his father, uh, Dr. Jonas Salk, wonderful lovers of design, not, not come and go fair weather lovers. They've been lovers of design and all of its constructs for decades. I know that Anna, with her advanced degrees and access and what she has done in the art and science of design in many different constructs have yielded just tremendous things for us. How do you see design helping to now reshape this space? Jonathan tickled upon it a little bit when he talked about these urban spaces. Let's talk about design as a part of this, of this solution set for these marginalized groupings. Anna, you... There's something that, that you have said about design in terms of it, it being basically optimistic. I think that's absolutely right. Design is a fundamentally optimistic endeavor. People come to designers, whether it's to design a business card or a building, because they have an ambition and a desire to meet the future with possibility. And so the task of design is to imagine the future and to be both parent and midwife to ideas and visions, large and small. Designers help frame lenses through which we understand and communicate who we are and how we relate to each other and to our world. And so, you know, if you think about um, this sort of uh, construct of culture frames policy and policy frames product, designers play primarily in the culture, in the distillation of culture and the definition of product. And that is a kind of continuum. In general, they're not as present in the policy space. However, policy is like an invisible hand that shapes product, right? And all of this comes back to culture. Designers do not exist outside of culture. In many ways right now, the invitation is for designers themselves to examine where they are and who they are and sort of, if you will, check their privilege. Design has typically been an extremely white space. It's a place that often goes unquestioned. There is an opportunity right now, and there's so much work happening uh, with BIPOC designers 
indigenous designers reframing design languages. You know, if you think about the design languages of, of mid-century modernism, there's really a desperate need for new design languages to emerge that give us a much more modern, alive, and vivid cultural frame that allow us to move beyond this moment, allow new policy constructs to, to come forward, and therefore allow the emergence of new products at scale, right? And I think that's the opportunity. A lot of it comes down to designers questioning themselves and sort of doing the internal work necessary to meet this moment where it is. Well said. <laughs> I think the concept that I, that I would introduce would be of informed design and design for, for human being and for human relationships. We as, as human beings evolutionarily lived in small communities with a lot of intergenerational contact and a lot of cooperative contact within that society. As the world has exploded as it has in the past few centuries and you know, design along with it, We've lost some of that, and we've lost a great deal of sense of, of community and, and cooperation. And I think the design of the built environment has a tremendous influence on that. And to, to think about designing cities where you can have urbanized environments where children can play and relate to each other in a more natural way with some natural elements can make a big difference. I think designing living spaces that focus on community as opposed to single-family dwellings makes a big difference. And designing workspaces where th that promote and shape people's behavior in, a, in again, in a more cooperative and pro-social way. All of these things, I, you know, I think are thrilling opportunities for design, but also making design an interdisciplinary discipline that's informed by the values and the, the knowledge of scientific research as, as well as uh, social science. That's a great input from both of you about the place of design central to so much of what we do to alter things, positively alter things coming out of these, these bomb drops that we've watched societally, uh, environmentally, uh, economically in so many ways. Hey, I wanted to ask you both, who inspires you? I mean, you're inspiring us. You're inspiring this audience that we're we're with today. But I'm curious, who inspires you, Ana Pinto da Silva? Um, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's so many people who inspire me. Oh my goodness! I will say, you inspire me, Dave Gilmore, and you inspire me, Dr. Jonathan Salk. It's such a privilege to be in community with you both. Uh, my parents inspire me, the people around me, the people I have the opportunity and the privilege to cooperate with and collaborate with. I'm so struck that we are each other's teachers and absolutely everybody has something to teach us and that we can learn from and learn with. I have been so struck by that, particularly over these last 18 months of COVID. And I, I wanted to pick up on something that Jonathan said, which for me is so important, is that it's really about designing for human relationships. 
and and maybe even taking a step further and saying, how do we design not just for human relationships, how do we extend beyond the Anthropocene, right, to bring forward a new era that has to do with our reconnection back to nature? And, and I think, Jonathan, you've talked a lot about and, and really have very important things to say about Indigenous communities and a reconnection and so much wisdom that we can learn from indigenous cultures. And I'm wondering if, if you could speak to that. Sure. Part of what I find so inspirational, Dave, is in the, for want of a better word, the, the wisdom, but also just the, the quality of life in indigenous societies and what in our evolutionary and historical past is tremendously inspiring in the ways that those societies interdigitated with nature and interdigitated with one another. Um, and it's a bit of an idealization, but I think what the human organism is capable of doing is just absolutely remarkable and, and absolutely inspirational. And the, the complexity and the sensitivity of the human organism is, is one source of inspiration. And that in a, its historical indigenous context we have a great deal to learn from what has been true for millennia, and we can reincorporate that into our modern world and make a new synthesis that you know is truly modern and truly adapted to the future. I'll also speak. I mean, it's a little personal, but I, I and I, I obviously have a personal perspective on it. But I'm actually one of the really truly inspiring things that I know of is is Louis Kahn's work in the, at, at the Salk Institute. Um, because those were two people who really had the capacity to understand the basic elements of, of life and nature and knowledge and spirit and to conceive of something and to dream of something. And then they each had the ability to work in detail all the way down to the last, you know, how you plug a hole in a, in a rebar in concrete and to create something that that really takes something from the spiritual into the actuality and into the living. And I think those human beings who can do that, who can dream big and and execute small, I, you know, I just find that tremendously inspiring. Thank you for this. Uh, both of you are ridiculously, if I can call it that, the two of you are so inspirational to the design intelligence community. I could not be happier that you joined me today on This Is Design Intelligence. Thank you both for being my guest. Thank you, Dave. I mean, saying thank you for those kind words, but it, it's really been a pleasure just to, to spend the time with both of you. So thank you for that. Dave, thank you so much for bringing Jonathan and I together. It's been really such an honor to have time together today. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This Is Design Intelligence. Sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.